Uh, last time I, I had such a gracious introduction was when the woman who was supposed to introduce me at the last moment was taken ill and I had to introduce myself, you know. <laughs> um, how to package 50 years of being a rabbi into a short amount of time. I decided to tell stories, short stories, um, actually, there are five of them, which I think cover most of the bases of what it means to be a, a congregational rabbi. Um, they've appeared in different places, but never altogether like this. Some of you may have heard them or, or read them or had to suffer through while I told them in another venue. My first official task as the rabbi of my own congregation uh, took me to the hospital. We had just moved into a one-bedroom apartment in Marlboro, Massachusetts. It must have been late July. I dutifully called the president to inform him of our arrival. He welcomed me and in the course of our conversation said that he had heard on the grapevine that a member of the congregation was in Mass General Hospital. She was a young mother whom he had heard was terminally ill. So I put on my rabbi suit, my only suit, and drove into Boston, found MGH, and walked into the room. One of Boston's great physicians was just concluding a counseling session with her. He motioned kindly for me to take a chair and listen in. The woman said, but how can I be a mother? I, I can't get out of bed anymore. But to my astonishment, he only scolded her. Is that what you have to do to be a mother, he asked? Is a mother just cooking and chauffeuring and playing? No, no, I, I, I guess not, she whispered. A mother is supposed to love and to teach. So new, he said, be a mother. Maybe you want to teach them about faith and about courage. Maybe you have an opportunity to love and to teach few mothers will ever understand. She wept, he wept, I wept. Thank you, doctor, she said. He kissed her, nodded to me, and left. I sat motionless astonished, dumbfounded in the corner. Startled, she turned to me and said, who the hell are you? <laughs> Story two. <laughs> the Hasidim have long been fond of pointing out that Yom HaKippurim, the Day of Atonements, could also be read as Yom Kippurim, a day like Purim. 
On Purim, you're happy. On Yom Kippur, you're sad. But the psycho-spiritual result may be identical. On Purim, we dress up like our worst enemy and remind ourselves that they're not as difficult from us as we'd like to imagine. On Yom Kippur, we attain similar liberation from the ego and its tricks through fasting, prayer, and enduring interminable sermons. It's a good teaching, but I didn't realize just how profound it was until about, well, now almost 40 years ago when the staff of my former congregation was performing its annual Purim spiel for the preschool. I don't remember how exactly the custom got started, but it had become de rigueur for all of us on the senior faculty and whomever from the office staff was unlucky to be around to act out the Purim story. Four-year-olds are not what you'd call a very demanding audience. The principal dramatic challenge is that we never seem to have enough cast members to play all the parts. These are usually distributed as we walk down the hall from the office to the preschool. Each of us would bring in a few costume pieces, a wig, a crazy hat, an old dress, a mask, a Star Wars lightsaber. You get the idea. That particular year, I got to play both one of the palace guards and Queen Esther. Like my other fellow thespians, I communicated this change of roles by walking over to the side and switching costumes. In this case, in this case a Boston Red Sox cap with a wig. The little one sat on the floor in rapt attention. Then we got to the part of the play where Queen Esther has to make her great decision. Haman had tricked King Ahasuerus into agreeing to hurt all the Jews, and Mordechai has tipped off Esther. But what to do? Should she save her marriage and her life by remaining silent? Or should she reveal her Jewish identity, try, her, try to save her people, but risk everything else? To try to help the little ones appreciate her quandary, in my Esther wig, I took a step toward them and, as they say, broke the fourth wall and spoke directly to the audience. Oh dear, oh dear, I said. Now what shall I do? If I don't tell the king I'm a Jew, all the Jews could be hurt. But if I do, the king could hurt me. I just don't know what to do. But before I could answer my own rhetorical question, one of the four-year-olds forgot he wasn't in the play and shouted, quick, be somebody else. <laughs> Third story. The red carpet in the synagogue of the synagogue where I used to work is laid directly over the concrete of the foundation. That's what Michael's head hit when he went down, the concrete. You could hear the crack. He didn't pass out. When people pass out, they melt into a pool. They can be caught. 
Michael just took a half a step backward as if he were trying to give himself some distance from the Torah scroll and his own bar mitzvah. But instead, he toppled straight back like a felled tree. When I turned around, I saw blood oozing from his left ear. I was certain he had fractured his skull, maybe worse. His mother screamed, oh God, not that, not now. Not what? I wondered. She used his new tallest to try to stop the bleeding. He has an infantile seizure disorder, she said. He hasn't had one in over five years. We thought he was cured. Michael just lay there unconscious. We joke a lot about the danger of holy moments, the great and terrible Oz, raiders of the lost ark, don't get too close or you might get zapped, things like that. But we don't really believe them. At least most of us didn't until Michael's bar mitzvah. Now we're a little less cavalier. The congregation came together. People waited silently in their seats. Physicians who were present came forward. The rescue squad arrived and took Michael to the hospital. Michael's mother, on her way out the door, asked us to please eat the luncheon. It shouldn't go to waste. I told the congregation that the doctors would do their jobs. Michael's family would do theirs, and that ours, even though none of us felt much like it, was to complete the service. Someone pointed out that we had forgotten to recite the concluding Torah blessing and respectfully suggested that the bar mitzvah might technically still be in progress. I waited around at the, at the Kiddush luncheon for a few minutes, but had no appetite. My heart was at the hospital. When I arrived in the emergency room, I found Michael all encased in an orange spinal brace and wearing an oxygen mask. But now everyone was smiling. The x-rays and the CAT scan show no serious damage, his mother whispered. The doctor says he'll be fine. Michael was conscious maybe more conscious than anyone else in the room. He looked up at me and proceeded to recite the three rules of checkers as taught by the Rabbi Nachum, the son of the Rabbi of Rizion, which I used to tease all my bar mitzvah students they had to memorize. You can't make two moves at once. You can only move forward and not backward and once you've reached the last row, you can move wherever you like. Then he said, did I finish? Am I a bar mitzvah? Oh yes, I said. You did the whole thing and more. Story four. <clears throat> Decades ago, as was our family's custom back in the days when the children were young, we would all go out for dinner at Burger King. For us in those days, this qualified as a restaurant meal. On the way home, if we had a little time and a little money, we might stop at Marshall's, a discount clothing store. 
The kids would play hide-and-seek among the racks of clothing while Karen and I browsed for bargains. On one such evening, I caught a glimpse of a tall, carefully made-up, attractive woman out of the corner of my eye. She seemed even at first glance to be distraught. Pretending not to notice her as she moved into the aisle where I stood, I saw that she was very pregnant and accompanied by a man. They were discreetly moving toward me. She was trying to catch my eye. But even if she did, I would have feigned ignorance. Yes, I know, I'm a rabbi, a public person, but give me a break. This public person happens to be shopping for clothes. It didn't work. She was closing in, moving through the bright fluorescent lights and music like a guided missile. Aren't you Rabbi Kushner? I could lie. But instead I answered, yes, uh, I am. Have, have we met? Uh, not exactly. We attended a service you did. My husband and I thought you were very nice. But before I could even acknowledge her compliment, she moved in for the kill. Oh, Rabbi, we were at the doctor's this afternoon, the third opinion. He says, I have an inoperable tumor. I'm going to die. He says, the baby will be fine. But I've only got six months at the most. Her husband was trying to look very strong but his eyes seemed abnormally red. Oh my, oh my God, I, I'm sorry. Is there anything I can do? Stupid question. Sure, a miracle maybe, right here between the sweaters and the men's slacks. Nothing big, mind you, you know, just let her live to see the kid grow up. Something like that. Hey dad, can I buy this t-shirt with a picture of Superman on it? Not now, son. Go find mom. I have to talk to these people. It's important. They introduced themselves, gave me the details. They'd been thinking about joining my congregation. Their world had collapsed. Why had this happened? Would I do the funeral? They asked me in Marshall's. They joined, she bore a daughter, she died, I did the funeral. Almost 20 years later, I was sitting with the other members of the synagogue's high school faculty over the Monday night pizza supper. We were surveying the students my glance settled on a short, vivacious, red-haired girl of 17. I pretended I wasn't looking. I didn't mean to intrude on their fun. She must have just finished telling a joke or playing some kind of prank because the whole table erupted with joy and laughter. A few minutes later, she came over to our table and asked if I would read over a creative worship service she had written for an upcoming youth conclave. Why not? I need a good laugh, I said with a wink. 
She grinned. I love that girl. I am honored that she looks up to me. That girl's father never did remarry. Last week, I whispered to another teacher, her dad told me that his daughter was thinking of becoming a rabbi. Look, I don't think God made a tumor grow in that woman's brain, or that God had anything to do with the choice of careers, or where I used to shop for bargain basement clothes. But I still can't get it out of my head that somehow God is mixed up in the whole horrible, joyous, goddamn thing. And the last story. For a man who hates goodbyes, the last year at the shul where I was a rabbi was hell. Every week there was another last. There were dinners and brunches and parties and concerts and speeches and gifts and hoopla as the calendar turned out my last day in the job after 28 years fell on June 30th, a Friday evening. There was a professionally done documentary film shown for the first time. I presented our cantorial soloist with my stender, my prayer desk, and with Eliza Stern, who was to become the interim rabbi, with my keys to the sound system cabinet. The congregation presented me with a handcrafted music stand that, believe it or not, looks like the letter Aleph. After the service, about 600,000 Jews came up to say goodbye. There was a lot of crying. I figured, well, this is it. I guess this is the last thing I will do. And before I realized what was happening, the hall was virtually empty. Come on, honey, I said to Karen. I do not want the last thing I do as the rabbi here to turn off the damn lights. So I picked up my gifts, waved to the few dozen people still lingering back by the Oneg Shabbat table and headed for the door. Then I saw Jim, the building superintendent. He was setting up the vacuum cleaner. Now, I've always taken some secret pride in the fact that I have enjoyed the respect of the maintenance staff and believe that a reasonable test of a rabbi's menschlichkeit is how the rabbi treats people who don't get to vote on his or her salary increases. Jim's a big bear of a man tries to act tough. Don't start, Rabbi, he said. It's going to be tough enough around here without you. I'm not going to start crying now. I smiled. Don't let him give you a hard time, spud. Then we both embraced and wept. I figured, so that was it. So that's how it ends. We walked down the darkened hallway past the bulletin board, now devoted to news about the new rabbi's search just beside what used to be my office. 
Then I noticed a man standing in the shadows. As he turned around, I recognized him. It was Lee Sternberg. I had done his bar mitzvah maybe 25 years ago. It was a tough one. His parents were in the middle of a messy divorce, and to make matters worse, he has some serious emotional and learning disabilities. Lee has survived on the edges with menial odd jobs. Lee is not exactly menacing, but he's not a sweetheart either. He makes people uncomfortable. Standing in the dim light, he looked awkward, even a little frightening. From the way he was standing, it was also clear that he was holding something behind his back. Whatever it was was partially concealed in one of those supermarket plastic bags that he had wrapped around his wrist. In that same split second, I thought two things. It's a gift. It's a gun. I could hear Jim running the vacuum cleaner down the hall. Oh, great, He's gone. he was going to shoot me. I was tired. It was over. I was done. Here, Rabbi, he said, to my relief, producing an old dog-eared binding broken English volume of the Jewish Publication Society Torah, it had been ready for the Geniza 25 years before. Don't you remember? He should have been happy I remembered his name. You gave me this in your old office. Oh my God, the kid remembers this after all these years. And then it dawned on me. He thought I had only loaned him the book. I had neglected to tell him that holy books are by definition have care, ownerless, they cannot be stolen. And here he was, feeling guilty for over two decades that he hadn't returned it, and tonight, tonight was his last chance. Oh my God, he was doing tshuva. He held out the book like a child. Keep it, Lee. It's yours. Do, do you mean it? I can really have it? Yes, Lee. The Torah is yours to keep. Oh, oh, thanks, Rabbi. I'll take real good care of it. I'm sure you will. Karen and I walked on out to the car and drove home.